John 11, 30 through 35. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had, who had come along with her also weeping, she was deep, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, there is this phrase um, that has been thrown around the church uh, or the Christian communities forever. Uh, I specifically heard it a lot um, around 2020 when we were going through COVID plus racial tension plus political unrest. Um, and it's this phrase that, again, we say it uh, a lot or it's said a lot in church is, it's okay, don't worry, Jesus is on the throne. Amen. That's so theologically true. But that didn't seem to hold a lot of water to the outside world that doesn't believe in Jesus, first of all. And specifically, I think what we witnessed in the last couple of years is um, that Jesus being on the throne is true, and even inside of the church, it felt like there should be a little bit more. And so although that is absolutely, completely true, he never comes off of his throne, um, there seems to be maybe a little bit more, or that wasn't a satisfying answer. And I remember when Catherine and I were going through, um, for five years, unexplained infertility, couldn't figure out what it was, and, and so many really well-meaning people would say, but you know that God has a plan. What do you do when you hate the plan? right? Like, because that's also true. God has a plan. And I remember hearing that. And, and sometimes in my like worst moments, it would move me into guilt of like, oh, I, I should have just trusted more. Um, I should be okay with the plan. And frankly, the plan wasn't that great to me in that moment. So what do we do when um, things are true, like Jesus is on the throne and he has a plan and also things are really difficult. And last week we kicked off a series, or two weeks ago, kicked off a series on, um, on Jesus. And last week we we're saying Jesus and some of his characteristics, Jesus the way of worship. And today is Jesus the way of mourning. And what Debbie just read is an example that apparently it's okay to be sad because Jesus did it. Apparently it's okay to mourn. And so how do we, this is the big question, how do we hold in tension this idea of like Jesus is on the throne and things are not always as they should be? How do we hold that in tension? And we want to engage in what does it look like to biblically mourn? Because this is a tension that we want to hold. And this is probably going to be a message. Um, I've talked some about this before. It'll be one we talk about every year because I don't think the church does mourning super well. We um, often move all the way over and say, well, I guess he's not even real, or we stuff it down and say, no, he's on the throne. If I say Jesus enough times, like my pain will go away. And there has to be some kind of middle ground. Apparently, from what we just read from John 11, Jesus also mourned, and Jesus was the most hopeful person ever to live. So um, we are going to weave a little bit of a thread through Scripture. So if you've been around for a while, it's going to be one of those mornings. Let's go. And, uh, and if you're new... We say this every now and then, relevance is, relevance is, oh, you sound sad about it. Relevance is, and if you are new, 
about eight minutes from now, you're going to say, oh my gosh, I don't know why I'm here. I could be at brunch. I promise you, relevance is coming. There is something. But we are going to weave a little bit of a thread all throughout Scripture. So here's where we're going just to help you out. We're going to start in Genesis. And then we're going to go to Genesis, Revelation, Revelation, John, Genesis, Matthew, Luke, Luke, Acts, Acts. Ready? Set your clock. Ten minutes. Relevance is coming. Let's start at the beginning. Genesis 2.9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's stop right there. Notice there are two different trees in the garden. And this is perfection. This is like God with us. And and if you're newer to the Bible, or maybe you've heard this story, they were not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they did. So tangible reminder, they ate the fruit. Um, And this is, you walk around, this is a reminder. Things are not as they should be. And if you don't have this logo, if you have an Android, more of an example. Things are not as they should be, right? (laughs) Thank you. And so they ate the fruit, and sin has now entered the world and completely fractured the way that things are supposed to be. And so we go to Genesis 3, and this is kind of the consequence that God gives them. He says, so the Lord God banished him, Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So they ate from the um, tree of knowledge of good and evil, but there was another tree there, the tree of life. And if you read Genesis 3, God says we have to get them out of the garden. One, there's consequences to sin, but two, we can't let them eat from the tree of life because then they will live forever, which on the surface sounds like a good thing, but actually it's not. Because in this perpetually broken state, God says in his mercy, it was God's mercy for him to say, no, they can't eat from the tree of life and live forever in this perpetual state because that tree represented perfection and living forever in that state. So God says, I have to get them. We, they have to leave the garden. They have to leave because they can't be in the presence of this tree. Maybe this is new to some of us. We talk all about the other tree. We don't talk a lot about this tree. This is the beginning. This is how the whole thing starts. It is perfection in Genesis 2. And then I want you for the, like, two of you probably that have paper Bibles, take all of the pages, turn them to the left. We're going to go to now to the very end. Revelation 21. This is probably a top five passage for me. This is the second to last chapter of the Bible. This is a picture of the end. It says, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Now, here is an obvious but profound statement. If he has to wipe away tears, that means they still exist. There's an example that things are not currently as they should be. He has to wipe away tears and death and mourning. That means that they must exist temporarily for a time. And so in the end of this perfection, we started in a garden, we end in a city, there's a throne in the middle of that city that God sits upon and all kinds of wonderful things around there, but there's this river that flows from the throne of God and it says in Revelation 22:2, it says on each side of the river stood the tree of life. There it is again. Now here's what's interesting. From the beginning all the way to the end, we don't see that tree of life come back. Genesis 2, Revelation 22. 1188 chapters the tree goes missing the tree goes missing because it is a sign of perfection so right now we live and maybe you've thought of this maybe you haven't maybe you've heard me say this right now we live between those two trees we live between the tree of life and perfection in the garden and the tree of life that's coming in the new city and we live currently in between those two trees There's a reason that things are not as they should be because we are between 
to perfections. And if we go back to the beginning, and this is a very simplistic answer to probably the most profound, biggest question that people have about Christianity, which is, if God is love, then why does he cause blank? And if we go back to Genesis 3, we have to remember that there is a lesser but still powerful opponent to who God is. It's the serpent or Satan, and in Genesis 3.15, as God is laying down the consequences of sin, he starts with Adam and then he goes to Eve, and then this is what he says to Satan in Genesis 3.15. It's probably not tattooed on your forearm or on your wall. Like This is still a very profound theological verse because it says that there is someone that is opposed to us. And here's what God says to Satan. He says, and I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then he says this, and then he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God says, I'm going to put animosity between your offspring, Satan, and your offspring, Eve, which is us. You guys are going to clash. And then God gets strangely specific. And he goes off of the generality, and then he says, but he, he, one that's coming from Eve, he, he will crush your head, Satan. He will banish evil forever. And it's important to know that you will strike his heel. You're going to hurt him. He will crush you, but you're going to hurt him. And so we're left asking this question, who is he? Who is he? And Kid City knows the answer, because the answer is always Jesus, right? Spoiler alert. But we're left, let's just imagine you don't know the answer. Who is he? Who is the one that's going to come that will one day crush the head of evil? And who is the one that's going to have his, bru- his heel bru- bruised? So the thread starts to narrow after this, and we could read the whole Old Testament. I'll summarize it here. There is a lot of expectation building. There's one that's coming from Eve, which isn't incredibly helpful because that's everyone, and then one coming from Abraham, and then David, and it starts to get more narrow and more narrow. Who is he? Who is the one that's going to bring in this new kingdom? And there's this beautiful passage, again, probably not one that you'll find in Hobby Lobby, but Isaiah 11 This beautiful passage where it says, and one day when he comes, the bear and the ox, they're going to hang out together. There's going to be a child next to a viper's nest, and it's going to be all cool because there is no more violence. It's a vegan's paradise in Isaiah 11. It says he is coming. He is coming, and this is what it's looking like. And so there is this expectation, and I want you to imagine you don't know the end of the story. There is this expectation that's building in Israel and all over the earth saying, who is he? When is he going to come? What is this kingdom going to be like? This one that takes away all violence and mourning and pain. And so the expectation builds and builds and builds. And finally, this Jewish carpenter comes onto the scene and people start to say, maybe he is he. And there's this expectation and Jesus starts to do things that maybe he might do, like heal the sick or the blind or even raises the dead, starts to multiply food. And so there's a lot of speculation. I think that he could be he. And in Luke 17, Jesus actually feeds into that. There's uh, the Pharisees, they're around, they're trying to trick Jesus. And they're like, hey, you know, tell us what the kingdom of God's going to be like. Is it going to be like this or that? And Jesus says, um, the kingdom of God, it's not going to look like this. It's not going to look like that. He says, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. I am here. But what's interesting is two chapters later, in Luke 19, it seems like a different narrative is formed. Jesus says, uh, or it says in Luke 19, while they were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the, and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear all at once. And Jesus corrects them. He says the kingdom of God's not going to appear all at once, which is confusing 
Because two chapters ago, Jesus, you said it was here, and now Jesus is saying, no, it's, it's not yet fully here. And here's what I want to say. This book, this book's amazing. Guys, this book is matchless in sales, in wisdom, in insight. It'll teach you history. It'll teach you science. It'll teach you love. You'll love the hero. You'll love the author. You'll, it'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. This book is unmatched, unparalleled, undefeated, often unread, often and also undeniably powerful. It's got action, it's got romance, it's got suspense, this book. And also, like your Facebook relationship in high school, it's complicated. <laughs> it is. It's super complicated because if you read Luke 17, it's like, well, man, this is like the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. And then you flip a couple pages over Luke 19 and he's saying, look, the kingdom of God's not yet here. And so I get why at times we're like, man, this book is really difficult to understand. And Jesus seems to be saying something that is a little bit more complicated than we've taken it at the beginning. Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is here, and also, it's not fully here. And the disciples, they still don't get this. Even after he's been resurrected, they still are like, okay, the kingdom of God is here, we got to do this thing. And in Acts 1, 6, uh, Jesus is about to go up into heaven, and uh, the disciples are around, and, and the way I read this is sort of passive-aggressive, because the disciples are like, okay, you're about to leave, but... Things are not still as they should be, but it's the Messiah, so I don't want to ask like a, a clear question. And so they ask this in Acts 1-6. Maybe you've heard or had a passive-aggressive question asked of you. They gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at, at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And what I imagine they're saying is, Lord, are you at, were you, did you say that you were going to like change things? Like, and maybe this sounds familiar. Did, did you say you were going to clean the family room? I, I just forget. Was that something? You, were you going to do the dishes? I can't remember. And the disciples, they're confused because they're looking around. They've read Isaiah 11. They've read Genesis 12. They've read Genesis 3. They know that he will get rid of all of this stuff. And then they're looking around. They're like, man, Rome's still here. And there's still poverty. And there's still violence. And there's still some religiosity. Jesus, before you leave, are you forgetting anything? Didn't you say that you were going to come and bring the kingdom back to Israel? And, and I love Jesus' response. Just ascends into heaven. <laughs> he doesn't answer. <laughs> and then in verse 11, an angel comes down, and, uh, and they're watching Jesus ascend. And verse 11, the angel comes and says, look, this very same Jesus, he will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. And I believe this is the moment the disciples finally started to get it. Oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. So not everything that he said he was going to do, he's going to do right now. And this explains how we both have the kingdom of God here in this midst and the kingdom of God is still coming. We not only live between two trees, we live between two comings of Jesus. We are in the same boat that the disciples were in Acts 1. They live between one coming and another where Jesus brought the kingdom and it's not yet fully here. And you've experienced this, I promise in moments of worship, when all of a sudden you're like, this feels like more than music. The kingdom of God is here. When you've laid your hands on the sick and they've gotten healed, the kingdom of God is here. When you've been at the deepest and darkest moments of your life and you've cried out to God and all of a sudden this liquid peace, this liquid love has watched over you, the kingdom of God is here. And it's not yet fully here. And I don't have to explain this one to you. There still exists, I don't know if you knew this, there still exists wars and injustice and, and poverty and violence. The kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is not yet here. Theologians 
call this the, um, and let's give them a break. They've done lots of other good stuff, but they call this the already but not yet. Thank you. We could have done better, but this is what they call it. They call this the already but not yet kingdom. The kingdom has already come, and it's not yet fully here. This is why we mourn. This is why mourning is both biblical and I would say even Christ-like because the kingdom of God is not yet fully here. There is still space for mourning. And we as followers of Jesus aren't allowed to be hopeless. Like hopelessness is not our story anymore because he is coming back. But in the meantime, things are still not as they should be. And so yes, he's on the throne and there is space and tension for us to hold things a little bit in mourning because Jesus mourned. I love what 1 Thessalonians says. Paul said that we grieve. And he addresses this. He says, we grieve. Oh, we grieve. But he says, we grieve as those different than the rest of the world. We grieve differently than the rest of the world. We grieve with one eye on our situation and one eye on heaven saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. We grieve differently. And so let's get practical for a second. I want to address what does mourning look like? How do we mourn well? How do we not go from one side to the other? Because we talk so much in this church, what's it mean to hold tension? How do we hold the tension of hope and also things are not as they should be, the already but the not yet? How do we hold that? And I think there's one, there's ways and blessings that we get from mourning and there's alternatives. We want to stay away from any alternative that isn't biblical, engaging with our feelings, mourning. One alternative is um, repression. We bottle it up. When we go through something hard, we bottle it up We stuff it down, and we say, no, I'm strong. Men. Men. No, I'm strong. Like, we stuff it down and say, I I can get through this. I don't don't have to, like, feel this. We repress our feelings. Number two, we retreat. As soon as things get hard, we run to something that's fun. As soon as things get hard, we run to distraction. Sevens. (laughs) Sevens. We retreat from pain. This, number two, often leads to some kind of addiction. As soon as I feel pain, I run to something else other than engaging in my feelings. The first two are not good. The third one, I believe, is the most dangerous. It's resignation. Maybe you don't stop believing in God, but you just stop believing God. You slide into a bit of permanent melancholy, I don't know if God's going to show up. Maybe he is the God of miracles for you, but he's certainly not the God of miracles. And we slide into a little bit more of a rationalistic view of who God is, and we're just confined to the wisdom of the world, and God didn't do it for me now, so he might not ever do it for me. And we're just, we're there. We've resigned all hope in God. We still believe in him because we think this thing is true, and I don't want to go to hell, but we've essentially stopped following Jesus and stopped having expectant faith in him. This one, I believe, is the most dangerous. Just real quick, take a moment. Which one of these alternatives are you most often drawn to? In moments of pain and moments of sadness, which one of these three are you most often drawn to? Repression, retreat, resignation. There's also blessings that come from mourning. And this is what I'd love to get across this morning, is there are blessings that can be poured out when we mourn, when we don't just ignore or retreat, when we engage in hard things, there are blessings that come. Number one is presence. His promise is his presence. 
He said that he'll always be with us. He said that he draws near to the brokenhearted. His promise in the midst of mourning is his presence will be with you. Number two is healing. Healing is not often linear. We have to let the wound heal. This is giving it air, and healing comes when we engage in mourning. And number three, this is so good. This is, it's power. Power comes as a blessing in mourning. If we look at almost every miracle Jesus did, it came, it started from a place of, of mourning. The woman with the issue of blood was at the end of a rope, and the power of God met her. Jairus' daughter was on the brink of death, and the power of God met her. The story that Debbie just read, Lazarus was already dead, and Mary and Martha are mourning, and the power of God comes in. The power of God is one of the blessings when we actually engage in mourning. Jesus loves to show up with his power in the midst of mourning. Almost every miracle that Jesus does starts from a place of mourning. Which blessing do you long for? In the midst of mourning, which blessing do you long for? Which one of these is speaking most to you? Do you want his presence, his healing, his power? And the more that we experience disappointment, the more we long for his coming. That's the goal of mourning. The more we experience disappointment, the more that we long for his coming. When we go through hard things, we don't have to get better. We don't have to look more like Jesus. That's a lie. The psalmist Kanye West says, that, 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 that don't kill you only makes you stronger. Good in theory, not true. Just not true. That that don't kill you sometimes can make you weaker. Sometimes can make you more cynical. Sometimes can lose your faith or expectation in God. We don't have to get better as we go through hard things. But how we engage in hard things, how we mourn, does make us more like Jesus if we engage in the process and not resign, retreat, repress, any of those things. And the more that we experience hard things, the more we long for his coming. And if we're going to follow Jesus, which is the entire goal of all of us being here, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to acknowledge there are tears along the way. There is mourning along the way. And it's not only wise to mourn, it's Christ-like. It's Christ-like to engage in our feelings and say, God, it's not supposed to be this way. And he knows because there is, for a time, one that is lesser in power but opposed to him. But guys, guess what? There's coming a day that he will crush his head. In the midst of mourning, his promise is his presence. There is a city that is coming. There is peace that's coming. There is redemption that's coming. There will be evil that is banished. There is coming a city. And right now, we live between those two hopes. We live between those two trees, and we live between those two comings where things have come, the kingdom has come, and the kingdom is also not yet here. Um, I shared this earlier, but if you've been around for a while, you know that Catherine and I, uh, for five years, had unexplained infertility. Two years, uh, we were in Las Vegas, and we had this strange opportunity when we were leaving Vegas, felt like we were supposed to move here with a team of people to start this church, um, where we didn't have to get here immediately, and we had like six months free, and so we did what any rational couple would do, and we moved to Barcelona for four months. It's amazing. And, and so as we're preparing to go to Spain, I was finishing seminary remotely. Catherine has always worked remotely. As we're getting ready to go from Vegas to Spain, a bunch of our friends, really good friends, said, man, I think it's going to happen for you there. You're going to be relaxed. It's a new transition. It's a new season. And it made a lot of sense, so we started to believe that as well. It's like, yeah, I think, I think that that probably will. That totally sounds like God. And so we get to Spain, and, uh, and we tried. I oh, hope we tried. But it didn't happen. 
didn't happen. It was actually really confusing. In the first month, it's like, okay, that's fine. We were there for four months. And I remember the second month, we found out that we weren't pregnant, and Catherine had walked away, and I was sitting on the beach, and, um, and I was complaining to God. I said, God, this plan of yours, I don't like it. And, um, and as I'm talking to him, I felt like the Lord said, and again, it's crazy to hear God's voice, but I felt like the Lord said, Chris, do you trust me? And I responded. I said, yes, you know, I'm a pastor. Of course I trust you. Like, I trust you. And, and I said, but what I don't, and then he, he interrupted me. He said, Chris, do you trust me? And I sat there for about 30 seconds because I wanted to think about it. I wanted to make sure if he never gives us kids, if he never does this thing, if he, ne- if he doesn't come through in all the ways we hope, it, do I actually trust him? And I sat there for about 30 seconds. I thought about it, and I said, yes, I trust you. And then he said this. He said, trusting me is the sweetest place that you can be. And when he said that, I, uh, it resounded in my spirit like nothing I'd ever heard before. And I knew that it was more than just some good wisdom. And so I wrote it in my journal. And a couple of weeks later, um, we were still in Spain. Catherine got a call from uh, one of our friends that said that they were pregnant and they wanted to tell us ahead of time before they announced it. Uh, They'd been trying for a couple of months. And it's always a bittersweet call because um, you're so happy for them and it's a reminder of what you don't have. And Catherine, again, she's doing the same thing I was doing on the beach. She's processing with the Lord. And she said this to him. She said, Lord, why have you not chosen me? And the Lord, again, similar to my experience, the Lord said back to her, Catherine, I have chosen you. I've chosen you for intimacy. And it resounded in her spirit that it was more than just good wisdom. There was something there. I've chosen you. I've chosen you to be close to me in this season. A couple, like a month later, um, we lived in like a 300-square-foot apartment, so we were always together. And uh, Catherine, I think, was grocery shopping, and I was just watching YouTube worship um, and having like a really good time with the Lord. And I was watching this worship leader, her name's Melissa Heltzer, and she was telling the story of how she wrote this song. So she's talking, not singing at this moment. And I'd heard the story before, but I liked it, so I kept listening. And um, she was telling the story, and she deals with chronic pain. And she's like, here's how I wrote this song. She said, I woke up one day, and I had chronic pain everywhere. And she said, Lord, take this away. And the Lord said, Melissa, I want you to sing your way out of it. And she's like, no, not today. I'd just rather you take it away. And she's brushing her teeth a few minutes later, and she's like, Lord, take the pain away. And God says, sing your way out of it, Melissa. And then, and I'll never forget this, um, because this is also how I learned how women blow dry their hair, but she is illustrating it. She's bent over, blow drying her hair, and she said, God, take the pain away. And I've seen the story. I like the story. I know what she's about to say. She's about to sing the first line of the song that she's going to sing. And God says, Melissa, sing your way out of it. And she just belts out the first line of the song, I'm strong and I'm full of life. And I don't know what happened, but I instantly started to weep in a way that I've never wept before. I started to like convulse. It was ugly. But what was strange was my mind, I was like, I'm not sad. Like in my mind, I was fine. I was like, what's happening? And, and I'm like shaking. It's ugly cry. No one's there. Praise God. And, um, and I, I said this to the Lord. I said, Lord, what is happening in my spirit that my mind's not aware of? And, uh, and the Lord said, Chris, I, I want you to sing your way out of infertility. And, uh, and I knew instantly what he meant. He meant he wanted me to write a song, which doesn't make any sense because I have zero musical ability, um, truly. 
every time there's like worship auditions here, like they're strangely full or something. So <laughs> I, I'm bad. I am bad. Um, and I don't know anything about music, really. But I knew what he meant. And it didn't make any sense. So I waited for Catherine to get home. And I was so weird when she got home. Because I was like, I need a confirmation on this. So I showed her the video. I said, hey, watch this video. You know, if God says anything, let me know, whatever. And so I like leave the room. And I'm like peeking around the door, like watching, like hoping like Gabriel comes and tells her the same thing. And she watches the video. And I'm like, oh, oh, you're done? Oh, cool, cool. So like, what's up, girl? Did God say anything? Uh, and she's like, obviously you think that we should write a song together about infertility. Or, sorry, I, sorry, obviously um, you think we should write a song together. And the, 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 the disappointment I felt in that moment was incredible. Because I was like, why do you say it so matter-of-factly? And she said, well, you're being so weird, and this is, like, kind of obvious. And, uh, and I, I truly, I was, like, so bummed because I needed the Lord to confirm it. And I hadn't told her my story yet. And then she said, but what's interesting, she said, this morning I was praying, and, uh, and she said, I felt like the Lord said that we're supposed to write a song about infertility. I hadn't told her my story yet. And so the band can come up. Um, we are, Catherine is, going to sing the song that we wrote. And we sang it a couple years ago. Um, and here's what I love about this song. We wrote it, we mixed it, we produced it. No pregnancy announcement ever in the midst of it. This song was completely birthed and completed in the midst of mourning. Because sometimes we don't know what the bow looks like because the bow's not on the story yet. And so this story, this song, and you'll recognize some of the lyrics even in it, comes from a place not of, oh, now we know how the story ends. This song was completely written in the midst of mourning. And this song means a whole lot to two people in this room. But I believe it's for anybody that's also in the midst of waiting, that is feeling that tension very tangibly in their life right now. And so um, we're going to sing this. You can stay seated and listen. But I want you to engage with the Lord during this. And I want you to feel whatever you need to feel, especially if you're in the midst of something that's just not as it should be. Because being Christ-like means that every now and then, every now and again, we can mourn. 